Our gospel reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with and, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Well, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Noah and the Ark is one of the very first Bible stories that we learn as children. The animals and the Ark and the rainbow all lend themselves to great children's stories and children's Bibles in ways that many other stories in the Bible do not. Uh, Noah and his wife Nema even grace the cover of our children's Spark Bible. So such is it, beloved. The things we probably remember best about the story are the animals, the ark, the rainbow, but there is much more to the story of Noah and the ark. So just a quick recap. The story of Noah and the ark comes very early in the Bible. It starts in Genesis 6. So you have Adam and Eve at the beginning, and then Cain and Abel, and then a summary of the ten generations between Adam and Noah, and then our story begins. It is basically the fourth story told in the entire Bible. There's creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and then there's Noah and the ark. And so God sees that the world has become wicked, violent, and a corrupt place, and it says that God regrets even having made humankind. The scripture says that the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. The situation is very nearly unredeemable, so God decides to send a flood and tells Noah, the one righteous person that God can find, to build an ark big enough for his family, his wife Nema, their three sons and their wives, eight people all together, and two of every living animal. Now, the part of the story that we don't talk about as kids is why does God do this? Why does God consign the world to oblivion and wipe everybody out? Why would God do such a thing? Well, I like the way that Rob Bell approaches this story in his book, What is the Bible? And he reminds us that in the ancient Near East, there were lots of flood stories across many cultures. Everybody in those days had a flood story. It was one of the ways that ancient peoples and cultures made sense of the phenomenon of flooding. And typically in those stories, the gods wipe out everything and start again until they decide to flood the earth once more. The difference in the story of Noah is that God saves the righteous remnant and then God repents of the flooding and swears never to do it again. Bell says what is interesting is how many of those stories in the Bible that appear to be primitive and barbaric were actually a step forward. So oftentimes the passages that people dismiss as primitive and barbaric were actually enlightened and progressive for their time. 
You have to read the Bible in terms of evolution, he says, in terms of expanding human consciousness. The story of Noah, as with many stories in the Bible, actually represents a leap forward compared to the surrounding cultures, stories, and traditions of that time. And we hear in 1 Peter that Jesus proclaims forgiveness and release and life to those who were taken by the flood. Well, back to the story. The rain starts to fall and they enter the ark. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights. The water covers the earth for another 150 days. And then the waters begin to recede and the ark comes to rest on the top of a mountain. Another 40 days pass and Noah sends a dove and it comes back having no place to land. A week later, he sends out the dove again and it brings back an olive branch. The tops of the trees are showing. And another week later, he sends the dove and this time the dove does not return and it is safe to exit the ark. Ultimately, when you do all the math, Noah and his family were in the ark for around 371 days. They were quarantined in the ark for a year. Does that sound familiar? Cut off from others, grieving the loss of friends, huddled with their family and lots of pets, unsure of when it will end and what comes next. Noah and his family were quarantined in that ark for a year. I can imagine Noah's great-grandchildren asking him years later what it was like and him saying, as I and many of us do, well, you know, it was hard, but we got to spend a lot of good time together as a family. And that's true, but we also know quite personally what this kind of experience can cost us. And we can imagine that they did not get along the whole time that they were in the ark. I mean, we have four kids and two dogs, and that is hard enough, let alone with two more people and two of every creature. And it puts the debates in our house about whose turn it is to do poo duty to shame. Oddly enough, it was our sabbatical in 2019 that prepared us well for this quarantined experience. As we were traveling, we had Jenny's parents and the kids, so eight of us in total, traveling together through Portugal and Spain in 100-plus degree weather. Everybody was hot and tired and often cranky. We were changing cities every few days, squeezed into vans and Airbnbs, everybody in a different mood with different interests and different capabilities. It was an incredible traveling experience, but that part of that experience was so hard and so much harder than being stuck at home during COVID, where everybody can retreat to their own space. You never know how life prepares you. And so I'm sure that the ark, as big as it was, I'm sure felt at times very, very small. So where do we find ourselves in this story this morning? We are squarely in the ark. And perhaps we are in that part of the story where we are sending out the dove in the hopes that it will bring back a report of something resembling normal, news of restoration and relief, or at least a vaccination appointment. We are learning and we are leaning into the hope that perhaps our time in the ark is nearing its end, although we can't say for sure. 
We are longing to once again set our feet on solid ground rather than continuing to be buffeted by the winds and the waves. But for now, we are in the ark and we are in it together. The ark, the symbol of hope and salvation, redemption and the preservation of life and the promise of new beginnings and fresh starts, a bridge between what has been and what will be, carrying us, its passengers, from heartbreak to hope, from death into life. The story of Noah and the ark begins one of the central motifs that runs throughout the Bible, this time frame of 40 days. We have the flood where it rains for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. Moses spends three consecutive periods of 40 days on Mount Sinai in God's presence. And as we hear in the gospel, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And there are many, many more references to these 40-day periods of time. And this is what the season of Lent is modeled on. 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, not including Sundays, which are always a celebration of the resurrection. In the early church, it was the time when new converts would prepare to be baptized, which is still practiced in some churches today. But for us, Lent is a container of time, a container of time to reflect, pray, to refocus on our faith and prepare to celebrate with joy on Easter Sunday. We might even think of Lent as an ark that holds us carries us, preserves us, sets us apart, holds us, redeems us, and delivers us. At least, that's how I'm thinking about Lent this year, that Lent itself is the ark. If not for our physical bodies, then for our souls and spirits, our minds and hearts, which have been so taxed this year. Lent can hold us, sustain us, preserve us, carry us, and deliver us to that Easter morning until we see the olive branch and see the rainbow in the, st- in the sky, until our hope is restored, God's promises are fulfilled, and our feet tread again along the solid ground and return to the places and pathways that we have missed during the pandemic. We often think about Lent as a time to give something up, but what happens to our practice of Lent when we have already given up so much In this past year, we are already familiar with the privations we are often associating with Lent. And so maybe there is an invitation this time around to experience Lent in a different way. Rather than giving something up, maybe Lent, and I suspect it was always meant to do so, invites us, as Lindsay preached on Ash Wednesday, into an unforced rhythm of grace to take on that burden that Jesus describes as easy and light and to find rest for our souls. As it says in 1 Peter, this is a time that brings us back to our baptism, which the flood prefigured, which now saves us, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. It is a time to return to, as the scriptures say, the life that really is life, and not just what our world offers, which is simply an approximation of it. Traditionally, there are three pillars of Lent, praying, 
fasting, and almsgiving, which come to us from Matthew 6, the gospel reading for Ash Wednesday. And in fact, our Lenten micro-practices that we are following this season are all based on these three practices. And when it comes to Lent, we usually think only of fasting, of giving up something, but Lent is more than that. So let me make some suggestions for us in 2021 on these three practices. Praying. Use this time to pray more often, even if it's only a short and stolen moment. You know, it's turning out that my unofficial prayer partner this Lent is Ann Fiddler, who is a deeply praying person, and uh, she's just been um, asking me to call her and pray with her. And I've been calling and praying with her. It's just a few minutes on the phone, um, but it's such a beautiful thing for her, but also a beautiful thing for me. And Anne, if you're listening, I'll call you later today, and we will pray together. But just a few minutes, just a minute or two of prayer can make a difference in our awareness of God in our lives. It helps us to speak out loud the things that we feel and to know that they are seen and blessed and held in the heart of God. Prayer is a way of feeling less alone, more connected not only to God but to others as we pray for them and they pray for us. Even though we are isolated from others, we are always connected in prayer, even if that prayer is only help me or thank you. Second, fasting. This is the practice that people remember most about Lent. Giving up chocolate or candy, caffeine or alcohol, uh, and I've given all them up. I've given all of those up at one time or another during Lent. Um, and, and this kind of combination of self-improvement and mindfulness about God and connecting in our own small way to Jesus' sacrifice for us. But this year, how about we fast from something else? How about we fast, that is, refrain from guilt and shame? How about if we fast from self-judgment and being hard on ourselves? How about if we fast from perfectionism? How about if we fast from putting up our armor and cutting ourselves off from our own deep feelings and from the feelings of others? How about we fast from thinking that we should just be able to go along as normal, when life and the world are anything but. And instead, practice self-love and self-compassion, the love and compassion that God has for us, but we don't always extend to ourselves. And finally, almsgiving, giving to others. This practice reminds us that we have gifts to share, resources and abilities, and that in a time when so many of us feel so helpless, that we have agency and that we have power and that we can make a difference. Whether it's donating to Lutheran disaster response to help alleviate the suffering in Texas or safely helping a neighbor or a phone call or sending a card, almsgiving reminds us that we have something to offer and that human connection is always possible and all the more important in these times. So, prayer. Moments of talking to God or listening to God. Strengthening our feeling of connectedness toward God, others, our world, and ourselves. Fasting. Giving up the things that steal away our life and hope and joy. And almsgiving. 
giving of ourselves to help others and to remind ourselves that even in such a time when we experience such powerlessness, that we all have the power to help, to change, and to love. These are good prescriptions for our Lent this year, for this time in the ark, not as penitential practices, but as practices of hope, practices of hope, and ways of already and even, even now shaping the world we want and the people we want to be when the doors open and we walk into the future together. As Alice Walker once said, look closely at the present you are constructing. It should look like the future you are dreaming. And Pope John Paul II once said, the future starts today, not tomorrow. This is not an easy time, but as God did for Noah, his family, and the animals, God will carry us and preserve us in this Lenten passage to a new hope, to resurrection, and to new life. Amen.